Welcome to tonight's dialogue um, at the Forum for European Philosophy and the MSE. As some of you might know by now, my name is Christina Musa. I'm a fellow here at the Philosophy Department and I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum. And uh, it's my great pleasure to have this dialogue tonight on happiness, which is, of course, as we can see by the fullness of the room, a very interesting, popular, <laughs> important topic. Um, almost everyone I would um, like to suggest is sort of striving for happiness in some sense. Of course, that raises all kinds of difficult questions about what happiness is, um, whether we can measure it in some way, which becomes relevant when we look at recent proposals um, as to including measures of happiness perhaps in some sort of measurement of how well an economy or society is doing. Um, and so with us here to discuss these and related questions tonight are two um, very interesting uh, people who have done interesting work on this topic. So we have Antje Kaupinen here, who is a lecturer in the philosophy department at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, he received his PhD from Helsinki, and his research interests are in philosophical moral psychology. Anyone wants to know what that is can ask Antje about that. Ethics, ethics, <laughs> well-being uh, of particular relevance to tonight's topic, and the foundations of human rights. And uh, we have Andrew Clark, who is a research professor at the Paris School of Economics, so the Lond London counterpart <laughs> of the LSE, but he's also true to his home institution. He received his PhD here at the LSE, and he's also um, a research associate at the Center for Economic Performance here at the LSE. And his research interests uh, lie at the interface of psychology, sociology, and economics. Uh, in particular, the use of job and life satisfaction data to analyze mar labor market phenomena, and he's also, more generally speaking, interested in social interactions and social learning. And so um, what we'll do is we'll follow the sort of standard procedure for the dialogues here uh, at the forum. So the two speakers will, I think, briefly say a few words, introduce uh, their view on the topic, then discuss uh, amongst themselves for a little while, and then we'll open it up for questions and contributions from you. And so now I hand over to you. Thanks. Okay. Uh, things are going to happen here, aren't they? Let's escape. That's not what I wanted to happen, actually. Is that what I wanted to happen? Oh, okay. It's the first test. See, happiness is a practical <laughs> problem. Okay, so very nice to be here. I'm overjoyed that so many people uh, turn up for these kind of events. Um, I'm overjoyed now. I hope you're going to be overjoyed in about an hour and 20 minutes' time. You'll tell me if you're not. Um, this is the difference between anticipated and experienced utility. <laughs> so, um, when I was asked to do this, I had one key question. The you know, key question is, why me? What, what do they want me to do this for? And, and uh, I came up with two answers in the train coming over this morning. I thought, well, obviously, it's because I'm an LSE graduate. So that, that's got to be it. They asked me because I did my PhD here, and they couldn't find anyone else. Um, but that, maybe that's not it. So the second thing I thought, well, they must have scanned all the economists who work on happiness, subjective well-being, and we tend to think of these as synonyms, and I'm sure Ant is going to give me a kicking for this later. We, we use these as, as synonyms. We think they're all the same thing. And when I say well-being, welfare, and utility, I mean the same thing as well. So there. Anyway, so 
I'm an economist, so I know how to do this. Um, so they, they must have scanned all the economists who work on subjective well-being and thought, which is the one who has the least idea about philosophy? It's me. Uh, I just have no clue about any of this. So I'm really here to, to learn as well. And in, in economics, people do things like wheel out Bentham and things like this. And I just don't know what to do with that. I run regressions. You know. So it's going to be an interesting thing to actually um, come up against each other in this context. So, um, yeah, it's, it's actually it's, it's difficult being clueless about philosophy. As, uh, as I think was mentioned, I live in France. I've been living there for 18 years now. And, of course, in, everyone in kindergarten, everyone, all the animals, domestic animals, learn philosophy. So they all know all about this stuff, and I've just got no idea. So the, what I'm trying to say here is Andy gets the hard questions, OK? Because I can't deal with them. As long as you answer them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm full of that. <laughs> Completeness, completeness. Um, okay, so I was um, I was very happy to walking here, received at the door when I walked into the Wolfson Theatre, received at the door by this kind of gaggle of girls saying, "Are you here for the financial meltdown?" <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it's a disappointment. But um, no, I'm not here for the financial meltdown. What I am here for is I actually just had a computer meltdown. Uh, my computer just literally, oh, well, it's not literally, but it's sort of, it doesn't work anymore, that's what I'm trying to say. So what I haven't done is managed to do any work on my presentation. So what I'm trying to prepare you for here is this isn't actually very good, okay? Um, so I, I was planning to work on it, but my computer had other ideas. Okay, so let me, um, let me try and find out what it was I did write last night. On happiness. So my first question then, I was trying to think, well, I'm not going to talk to economists, but maybe there are some here, and I apologise in advance. Um, I'm just going to, I'm talking to a general audience, and what's the biggest question I can possibly imagine for a general audience? What, what is happiness then? Um, and, and the answer is, you know, standard kind of joke, it's like an elephant, you know it when you feel it, but you try and define it, and you just end up going, going in circles. So, my first proposition is that everyone probably knows what happiness is, in the sense that we know when we're doing well and we know when we're not doing so well. Um, so, yeah, we, everyone knows when they're, when they're happy. That's, that's good. That's fine. I'm a social scientist, so that's absolutely no use to me. What I need is some kind of simple way of telling how well people are doing, because that's <coughs> going to be the object of my study is actually figuring out who's doing well, who's doing badly. So I need a concrete answer to the question of what is happiness, and a, and a kind of concrete question that I can put to people, and not put to two or three people in in-depth discussions, but put to five, 10, 20, 50, 100,000 people in a questionnaire. Okay, And I say 100,000 because that's the size of the new um, version of the British Household Panel Survey, uh, the UK LHS, HLS, uh, the UK Household Survey, which is interviewing 100,000 people per year now. So this is the kind of question that social scientists um, ask individuals. I'd like to say the, it's a great question because the economists came up with it, but that would be a lie. 
actually, e economists are real latecomers to this, so we're piggybacking on all the work that sociologists and psychologists did. So here we are. This is the kind of question that we ask people, all things considered, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with your present job, for example. It's a job satisfaction question. Answered on a one to seven scale, so this is an ordinal measure. Okay, we're seeing how well people are doing, whether they're better than a certain level. Um, where they say they're completely satisfied is the top, and there are various intermediate answers as well. And you can imagine asking this question not only about the job, but also about all kinds of things. Life overall, that's one that really interests me. In your life overall, how, how are you doing on a one to seven scale? And we could actually, you know, if I'd actually thought about this, we could actually have a little questionnaire that you could have filled out, and then I could have run some regressions, and that would be funky. But of course, I didn't think about that. Um, health, income, even marriage. How satisfied are you with your partner? Now, most people can answer that question, I would have thought. How satisfied are you with your social life? That's a single item measure. In a way, it's kind of absolute, because it's not telling people how to answer. It's not telling people what seven means, really, except seven is completely satisfied, whatever that may be. An alternative, um, I'm, just, I'm not going to go through all of these because there are like 350 of them and it will be very, very boring. Uh, this is one that a lot of people like, the Cantrell self-anchoring scale. And again, you can, I think most people can answer these kind of questions. The, the image here is of a ladder with 10 rungs. Uh, sorry, 11 rungs, 0 to 10. Um, and the top is the best possible life, the bottom is the worst possible life. And you give a number that corresponds to the to the rung of the ladder. And you can ask about where you're standing now, where you'll stand in the future. And I, I think these questions are great. They're single item. Um, and all psychologists hate them, okay? Because psychologists like multiple items. Um, so here is just the last, the last one I'm going to show you. This is a multiple item measure. It's the 12 question version of the GHQ, the General Health Questionnaire. And this is actually asked in the British Household Power Survey. So, so tens of thousands of people are asked this question, these kind of questions. Have you lost sleep over worry? Have you felt constantly under strain? And where's my favorite one? Uh, yeah, K. Do you think you're a worthless person? <laughs> yeah. Um, there is um, there's something that we worry about called social desirability bias. That when you ask people face to face questions like this, they often tend to give you answers that they think you want to hear or that they think will make them look good. So obviously, if you're interviewing someone and you say, well, so are you worthless? <laughs> then what are they going to say? But yeah, it's kind of rubbish. Um, so they, 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 they don't answer that, of course. The way this is administered is in a drop-off questionnaire that people fill in on their own. Meant to fill in on their own. These aren't questions that are asked by, um, by the interviewer. Actually, this has nothing to do with it, but there's, there's also questions in the BHPS, British Household Panel Survey, on are, are you an alcoholic? Why do we ask things like that? So no one says yes. Like 20 people a year, and I take my hat off to them. Yeah. It's a brave people. Anyway, so there are lots of different um, scales we can think of. And these sound simplistic and, in a way, oversimplified and not picking up everything. But the first thing I want to say 
here is and this, this kind of feeds on from what I was saying that everyone knows when they're happy. People can answer these questions. They just don't have any trouble answering them. I looked at wave 18 for BHPS. This is 2008 wave. There's about 7,500 people were asked how satisfied they are with their pay on the one to seven scale. And of those, only three refused to give an answer and 10 didn't know. They didn't know whether they were satisfied. So the other 7,437 people understood that question or were able to give an answer to it. Okay. So that's, that's, um, that's how we measure happiness. Um, that's how, how we measure happiness in surveys. I think those are, um, those are very useful pieces of information. I should underscore that's not the only way in which in, I, in I'm kind of representing social sciences here, that's not the only way in which in social science, in science we can try to see how well people are doing. Um, another way is not to ask them how, how happy they are, but just look and see what they do. Okay, that's a revealed preference approach. Another one is to ask them what they would prefer out of various kinds of lives, kind of vignettes. Okay, would you prefer to be in medium health and earn 150,000 a year, or good health and earn 75,000 a year? You can look at those choices, those vignette choices, and see just what people value. Um, that's another way of going towards their preferences. Um, there are loads of other things. You can look at things like left-right brain asymmetry if you're into uh, magnetic resonance imaging, but I'm not, I'm not going to go on with this. Um, send, the number of times people smile in a day, that's another great indicator of well So it's not just survey. Okay, so what do we use this information for? This is the second, the second bit of this introduction, and then I'll, I'll probably stop, actually, because I think I, I was going to add more. But so... Uh, what, why do we want to know this? Why is this useful? Well, it's just useful in a, kind of, in a kind of positive sense. I'd like to know which kinds of people are doing well, which kinds of people are doing badly. In the same way, I'd like to know about the distribution of income, for example. Okay? So I'd like to know whether men are doing better than women, for example. And the answer is yes and no, actually. It depends which measure you look at. If you ask... Um, if you ask satisfaction questions, are you satisfied with your life, then women do better than men, typically. They tend to give higher scores. If you look at those GHQ questions, which is more a me measure of mental stress, women are more stressed than men on average. These are British results. So it just, it just depends which kind of measure you're looking at. Okay, so that's the first thing. It's just a pure positive descriptive um, a way, a way of describing our society, if you like, who's doing well, who's not doing well. Second thing we can do with this kind of information, and this is, this is much more of an economics thing and a bit of a political science thing, is we can use them as a policy tool. Um, and what I mean by that is we can use them to value things. And of course, economists love valuing things. We want to know what things are worth. We want to know whether people, what people are, what people are prepared to pay, in a sense, what value they give to certain public goods. Things like um, noise pollution, green spaces. What's the value of a local park? Should we have more local parks? I don't know. These things are costly. Are the benefits outweighing the costs? That's what we'd like to know. Um, it's really difficult to get an idea 
of how much things are worth. If you ask people, they, they'll, they'll just give you ridiculous answers. And there's, I can't remember what this science is called now, but you do these evaluative questions. How much would you be willing to pay per year to have a park next year? The answers are, are almost unusable. Um, one way of getting an idea about this is to use happiness scores. One thing we know is that richer people are happier than poorer people. Okay, big scoop, right? Money does bring happiness. Uh, as long as you have it and other people don't, by the way, because it's kind of a relative thing. But so richer people are happier than poorer people. Also, people who live closer to green spaces are happier than those who live further away from green spaces. That's something you can do if you use GPS. You can calculate the distance to the local park. So what you've got two pieces of information. Richer people are happier. People who live closer to parks are happier. If you run a regression on that, you can just look at the ratio of the two estimated coefficients, and you've got a valuation. So living next to a park is worth so many dollars per year. So this is a great, great, great policy tool. And, and, and it's democratic. This is what I like about it. It's not one person deciding that a park is worth 10 million. This is everyone's happiness and well-being determining whether these kinds of public goods are a good thing to invest in. Okay, um, third question, I guess, do we want to be happy? Um, it's kind of a stupid question, isn't it? But um, I, think, I, think we should ask, I think we should ask it, right? Should we, should we want to be happy? Um, the only thing I want to say here is that in data, uh, databases like the BHPS, people act as if they want to be satisfied with their lives. They act as if they want to be happy, in the sense that individuals who report lower satisfaction scores in one year, when we go back to interview them a year later, this is panel data, we re-interview the same people, they're more likely to have quit their job, for example. They're more likely to have left their partner. Happiness predicts divorce, okay? And especially the happiness gap between husband and wife, actually. And especially if it's the wife who's unhappy. Um, so that's, that, you can do that one at home later, right? Um, but that's, it's, not my, it's not my responsibility. Um, they're more likely to have moved house. So if you're unhappy, you moved house. And perhaps most prosaically of all, people who are less happy are more likely to be dead when you go and try and interview them the next year. So if you want to predict life expectancy, just ask people if they're happy or not. And the miserable ones, they die earlier. Okay, so that's, that's a good thing to um, know. So last, absolutely last point, I promise, Andrew, okay? Um, what can we do about it? And I, I thought this was going to be an easy one, because in economics we run regressions and we think we've got exogenous explanatory variables. I thought, okay, this is going to be really easy, I'll just run a regression. You know, I, I can get things out like income makes you happy, health makes you happy, marriage makes you happy, um, that kind of thing. Um, and this actually turns out to be much, 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 much more difficult than I thought um, for two reasons. Um, one of which is that man is a social animal, okay? So when I say income makes you happy, what I mean is your income makes you happy compared to the income of other people, okay? So if I get a pay rise, that's a great thing. If we all get a pay rise, eh, it's not so good because it doesn't look, it doesn't feel so good in a relative status sense. And I think that's been demonstrated now with respect to income, 
that you can't continually make everyone richer all the time and increase happiness. And actually, if I've got this right, yeah, this is thought to be the explanation of the Easterlin paradox. Some of you may have seen this, um, whereby in the US, you've got a doubling of real GDP per capita over a 30-year period. That's the dotted blue line there. And average happiness scores in the general social survey, flat, just flatlining. They're not going anywhere. So making everyone richer makes no one better off. That, that's, a, that's a strong statement, I know, but I think, I think I've come to believe that in rich countries. Okay, so one of the conclusions from the Easterlin paradox is then that if income doesn't make everyone happier, we should do something else instead. We should have a nice marriage, we should do more social activities, we should invest in our health, we should go to church more. And my worry about this is that we might find the exact pro same social status problems with respect to these other explanatory variables. Either where I compare to you and you compare to me, as we do for income, so maybe me having a good job is only good if you've got a bad one, that kind of thing. And the other issue here is one of adaptation, whereby things are good to start with, and then you get used to them. You know, you've all heard the stories where you get a pay rise and it's brilliant, you think it's wonderful, and a year later it's just become the norm, you've forgotten about it. So you drift back to where you were to start with. And uh, part of my work with sociologists and psychologists has been on this issue of adaptation. Do things stay good forever? Or do you get used to them? And here's one to which you don't get used. This is uh, unemployment. This is following the same individuals over time. They become unemployed and they stay unemployed and stay unhappy. No adaptation to unemployment. So if there's going to be one policy sort of proposal I would make here is, is that unemployment has been demonstrated to be a major source of individual unhappiness. Um, what about marriage? Well, marriage is really good for um, anything up to about two years. Um, yeah, uh, it, re it really is. This, is. this is the same kind of procedure. We're following the same individuals over time, and they get married at zero. Okay? So you can see this anticipation effect. I'm going to get married, going to get married, this is great. Um, yeah, plan the honeymoon, plan the stag do. Uh, so this is great. Then I get married and it's good. And then I... Uh, um. <laughs> Actually, most of the effect of, the effect of the relationship between happiness and marriage, I think, is that happy people tend to get married. Okay, because you imagine you're a miserable so-and-so. Who's going to marry you? No one. <laughs> so, so in cross-section, you know, the married are happier. But that's because it's happiness that causes marriage, not marriage that causes happiness. And that's one of the things I try to beat into my students. Causality. What determines what? Here I think it's happiness determining marriage. Um, so you can see from women, this is even worse here. This star means a significant difference for those of you who are who are um, familiar with confidence intervals. So five years after marriage, women are actually less happy than when they were single. So. <laughs> right, so what, why is that? One of the reasons why that is, is that five years after marriage, you know, there's, there's some divorces coming up, right? And, and here we are. This is, this, this is it. <laughs> so you, you lose... You, you, you lose the wife, you lose the kids. You know, you are. 
these are, I didn't make these up, by the way. These are actual figures from, um, from the German socio-economic panel where we were able to follow a group of about 20,000 people over 25 years. Um, so all, what can you say about that? I think, again, you can say, well, divorce is rational. Okay, on average, divorce is rational. Are people making a good decision when they divorce? In terms of their life satisfaction, the answer is yes. Yeah, they are. They're happier being divorced than they were being married. Of course, let's point out that this is only people who will divorce. And the other flip side of the coin, if you like, is that people who marry and stay married for a long period of time, they, they, they tend to have higher happiness levels. But on average, marriage is not a particularly good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what about having kids? <laughs> nah. nah. <laughs> it's, it's too late for me. I don't know about for you, but I wish I'd done this about 15 years ago, actually. Um, so this, this is birth of child. Again, it's the same thing. We're following the same people until they have their first child. And of course, leading up to having the first child, this is great, this is a happy period. You know? This is nice. We don't have any kids and we're having lots of sex and that kind of thing. And that's why we have kids, presumably. And so, same thing for men and women. And then the kid gets born. Mm -hmm. That's okay. One year, two years, you can just see the terrible twos here. So th this, is, this is not an event that actually leads to short-run well-being. Um, my hope here is that if we follow this curve for long enough, it's going to go positive again. Um, mine, mine are 12 and 14 at the moment, and I think you know, it's just about getting above the line again. Um, this, this actually, um, I'm not trying to be facetious with this stuff, I think this is really kind of important work as well. This does underline one of the last points I wanted to make in that what is happiness, what is well-being. This is life satisfaction, okay? A lot of people would say that life satisfaction actually isn't all that matters. Okay, so this is what you might think of as a hedonic measure of just feeling good, feeling nice. Perhaps there are other kinds of measures like um, eudaimonic measures. That's a word I can never get my, my tongue around terribly easy, eudaimonia. Uh, including things like engagement, interest, having a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. And of course, that's something that I, I'm dead sure kids bring you. I mean, I've got so much of a sense of meaning in my life, it's ridiculous, you know. I don't want that much meaning in my life, I want less. Um, but on, that, on these fronts, I, I am not sure that those graphs that I just traced out actually continue to hold. So there is a debate that has, has almost not been addressed empirically in terms of satisfaction versus these measures of eudaimonia. And we have actually looked at this in the European Social Survey where we were able to design a module and ask questions to 30,000 people. And broadly, these things correlate, but there are significant groups of people who are happy but don't have meaning in their lives, and other people who have a lot of meaning and are unhappy, which brings me to my, my last um, I guess my last point here. Um, I, I often get this comment in seminars. I guess you do as well, right? Um, better to be Aristotle than a happy pig. And you know, I, in a way, I don't really know what to do with that statement. Um, because if we think I'm, I'm an economist, we do policy, 
And our policy is probably not turning pigs into Aristotle. I don't think we know how to do that. But the, what we do know how to do is arguably to make people have better functioning lives, to make people happier. And maybe the, the, the question here should be, do you want to be an unhappy Aristotle or a happy Aristotle? And I guess you'd want to be a happy one. I think we have some idea how to do that. And that's it. This was meant to be five minutes, by the way. I'm sorry about that. I got, I got all carried away. It's easy to get carried away. Uh, okay, I, I don't have a PowerPoint, so uh, I, I, I'll, <laughs> can everyone see me? Well, there's not much to see, so. Uh, stand, stand. <laughs> I, I, I have uh, a bunch of notes here. I, I, I haven't written down anything. I don't have a PowerPoint, but, but I'll try to make up uh, a few things. Uh, so thanks for that. I, uh, I was kind of expecting you to say some of those things, uh, so, so I'm happy. So I, I'm going to disagree with that. Uh, We've actually never met before. We met no, outside about exactly. half an hour ago. And I, I should tell you that I got married about two years ago, and I have, uh, had a baby uh, six months ago. So, <laughs> so all right. <laughs> yes, OK. Well, <clears throat> so I think that uh, there's basically uh, four important questions when it comes to happiness. Uh, and uh, Andrew addressed uh, quite a few of them, but perhaps all of them in, in, in his presentation already. But I'll, I'll give a bit of a philosophical perspective on, on those things. So, so those four questions are, are, first of all, what is happiness? Um, and as you might expect, philosophers don't think that it's such a simple question. Uh, the second question is, um, uh, how do we know, or do we know that we're happy? Uh, and how do we measure it, that related question. Uh, and the third question is, what makes us happy? Uh, that's, that's an empirical question. But I think that there's, there's something that uh, philosophers can contribute to e even that question. I, I'm not going to say much about it. And, and finally, uh, the fourth question is, what is the significance of, of happiness? Like, what, does it, uh, what does it matter for our personal lives uh, and personal decisions? And uh, what does it matter for public policy? And, and sh what, of course, the most important question is, uh, should it matter for these things? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that uh, the sort of mainstream philosophical views are a lot more skeptical on, on each of these issues than uh, 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 well, economics, psychology, and a lot of other social sciences that have uh, uh, taken up happiness as an important theme in the, in, in the recent years. OK, so but let's, uh, and, uh, what, what I'd like to do is, is give a brief overview here in, in these introductory remarks, uh, and then talk about some of the arguments, um, especially where we disagree uh, in, uh, with, with Andrew first, and then, then with all of you or any of you. So I'll try to be as, as well, not all of you, <laughs> not literally, but. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, so what is happiness? Well, uh, I, when I was working on this, I, I was listening to. Uh, the White Album by, by the Beatles. And as, as you may know, there's, there's a song on that album, uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun. And uh, now that's false. I can, <laughs> I can say with uh, great confidence that that's, that's false. Uh, now, but that's, that's the way that people sometimes speak. They, they talk about uh, what is a, a cause of happiness, perhaps. Uh, not, not a very common cause of happiness, but having a, having a warm gun, presumably you've shot someone or something. Uh, that makes you happy. 
But but the question about what happiness is is uh, is right. Well, what does it make you when it makes you happy? Now, in a sense, perhaps we know it when we we see it. Uh, but uh, when we try to articulate just what it is that we know, what it is that we see, it, it turns out uh, not to be so so simple. So so basically, we're interested. Uh, in, in the nature or essence, uh, to use a, a philosophical term, of, of happiness. Uh, sometimes philosophers like to talk about uh, the concept of happiness or conceptual analysis. We just want to know, just you know, what are we talking about when we when we talk about happiness? Uh, and when we answer questions like that, uh, it's it's a the form of the question is uh, it's a very old kind of philosophical uh, question. What, what is the nature of X? Uh, like, what is the nature of knowledge? It's just the same kind of question. It has nothing to do with uh, like psychology or any, any other science in particular. It's just a question about the nature of, of, of something. Uh, and the way that philosophers answer those, that kind of questions is that they look for what, what they call necessary and sufficient conditions for, for something. That's, that's one uh, a very traditional way of looking at things. So, so basically, when we ask what what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for happiness is we, we ask what is in common to uh, all the happy people and what is in common to all the happy people and no one else and what, what, what is it that, that, that makes them happy uh, that's, that's the kind of uh, thing that we want to know uh, but of course it could be that by accident all happy people have some trait that isn't happiness but is shared by only, only them so we want something more we want uh, our candidate's uh, answer to the question of what is happiness to, to fit with certain commonsensical platitudes about happiness. That, that if, if, if that's the case, then, then we can be sure that we're talking about the right thing. We, we picked out the right kind of uh, psychological state. Let's, let's, you know, let's narrow down our inquiry into what kind of psychological state is, is happiness. Um, so here's a few of those kind of platitudes that I think that any theory has to account for. Uh, so, other things being equal, it's better for you to be happy than to be unhappy. Now, notice, I don't want to say that it is always better for you to be happy than to be unhappy. It's only when other things are equal. Perhaps sometimes it's better for you to be unhappy. Uh, maybe, maybe it's better for you uh, to be unhappy if, if your partner has just died or if your child has you know, had a serious illness. It's, it, but other things being equal, it's, it's better to be happy than, than unhappy. Um, now, other things being equal, if you care about someone, then you want them to be happy. So, so it, it's something that we want for, uh, for other people as well. Um, it's a different kind of fight. Those, those both concern the significance of, of happiness. Uh, now, another thing, which I think is a platitude, is, is that um, people can be happy without realizing it. Like that, that should be a, a fairly common experience, that, that you realize only afterwards, perhaps, that, that you were happy. At a, at, at a certain time in your life, but you didn't realize at the time. Now that, that in itself calls into question some of the uh, things that uh, are assumed in, in much of the uh, psychological and uh, economic research. Uh, that people uh, can fail to, to recognize their own happiness. Now, now, depressed or anxious people aren't happy. Now, that, that again, these are meant to sound fairly self-evident, but, but as we look at the different theories, uh, some of them have uh, implications that go against these, these uh, seemingly obvious things. Wicked people can be happy. 
that's, that seems to me like a, like a platitude. Uh, if, if Hitler had, had won the war, he'd probably have been happy. Uh, but, uh, but there are theories, uh, ancient theories in particular, that uh, have the consequence that you can't be happy if you're evil or if you're, if you're wicked, because you have to be virtuous in order to be happy. Uh, to me, that suggests that they're talking about something different. They're not talking about happiness in the sense in which we these days understand happiness. Um, happy people are enjoyable company. Again, that should be pretty... Yeah. All right. Well, I could go on, but I, I, I trust that we, we all have a sense of this. This is the sort of thing that we're looking for. Some, some X that plays this, this kind of role. So, so here's four different views that have been defended in, uh, not, well, in recent philosophical uh, discussions, but, but also outside philosophy and, and, and um, in classical discussions of happiness. So, uh, so the first view, uh, perhaps the, the oldest view, is, is hedonism about happiness. Uh, so, so that view says that you're happy if you experience more pleasure than, than pain in your life. That can be over an arbitrarily short or long, long period in your life. Uh, and there's different variants of this kind of view depending on what kind of pleasure we're talking about. Some of our pleasures are sensory, and we can, we can feel them in our, in our body. Others are more intellectual. Uh, others are uh, attitudinal, as people say, when you're pleased about something, which doesn't have to feel like anything in particular. I think hedonism is it's false. Uh, why, why is it false? Well, uh, because it, it doesn't, uh, it, it is not true that all happy people experience pleasure. And it's not true that all people who experience more pleasure than pain are happy. Uh, so, uh, so, so here's a, uh, an example from Fred Feldman, another philosopher. Uh, so, uh, and this is, this is actually related to some of the things that, that you are saying and, and uh, also my, my personal life. So, so Feldman says that it's possible for a, a mother to, to be really happy when she's giving birth. I, and she might afterwards think that that was the happiest moment of my life. But it's also, and I know this not from personal experience, but, but, <laughs> but second personal experience, uh, that it is extremely painful to give birth to a child. Uh, so, so you have a lot more pain than pleasure, but you can still be happy in, in that kind of circumstance. Uh, why? Well, um, the, the midwives used to, they told us about a hundred times in advance that, well, it's, it's pain with a purpose. And, and you know, that, that's compatible with happiness, that the labor pains, there's a certain purpose to those pains, and that's, that's why uh, they don't uh, bother you in, in the way that other pains might. Uh, more, more generally, there's, there's a lot of pleasures and pains uh, that are superficial in, in a sense. They don't, they don't touch us or don't, don't get to us. And, and if they don't, they don't make a difference to our, our happiness. So, uh, so contrast uh, the pleasure you might have uh, when you have sex with a prostitute. I, I think that that's, you know, it's, it's plausible that, that that gives you pleasure. People go out and presumably that's why they do it. Uh, but that's, that's not joy. That's, that's not, I don't think that that's going to make you happy. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you if you had plans for tonight or, or something, but, uh, but you, know, you can have pleasure without happiness. And I, I think that's, that's, that's fairly clear. Um, all right. Uh, and, and there's lots more cases that we, we can talk about if, if we want. Okay. Now, the, um, 
The other kind of theory, uh, which is a pretty mainstream theory in the social sciences, uh, says that happiness is a matter of, of life satisfaction. Uh, now that could be, there's different variants of that, but on, on, on one version of that, it's, it's a matter of judging your life uh, in a particular way. You, you have a certain ideal of how life should go, or how your life in particular should go, and you believe that your life is going that way. So you're satisfied with, with your life. Perhaps your life as a whole, or uh, your uh, life in a particular domain, your, your, your work, your, your marriage, or your, your leisure, or, or whatever. Uh, uh, so uh, I think that that's, that's a, quite a problematic view. Uh, so, so for one thing, it, it is possible to be happy without making any judgments about how your life is going or even having a positive ideal. You can imagine a, a happy-go-lucky person who just goes moment by moment, who never thinks about their life as a whole, but they're still happy. They don't make it. They're not satisfied with their lives. They don't have an ideal that they match. Uh, uh, and it might be true that uh, where they do think about it, they would cease to be happy. They would be, what am I doing? I'm just living day by day and you know, going from job to job and, and partner to partner, and this is no kind of life to be living. But, but they could still be happy uh, in, as things are when they're not, not thinking about this sort of thing. Uh, it's possible uh, uh, to, to be happy while, while judging that your life isn't while well, not being satisfied with your life. I think that's that's possible as well. So, so if you think of someone who's a kind of striving kind of person, who who have a lot of things, good good things in their lives and and, and uh, enjoy their life, but they're not satisfied with it because they want more. They, like, um, like think about uh, like Anthony Weiner, this this American politician who was just called for sending. Uh, 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 very compromising photographs of himself to, to young women on the internet. Like he was, uh, he was aiming to be the mayor of New York and the president and whatnot. He was probably not satisfied with life. He, he could have been happy leaving. Probably not anymore now that he got caught. Uh, all right, but uh, but here's I think even a stronger argument. I can be satisfied with my life, but still be unhappy because I care about other things than my own life. So so say, I, if I'm a Syrian uh, refugee, and I'm living in London. And I'm doing really well. I have a, a business of my own, say. I have a family. You know, I'm perfectly satisfied with everything. But my, my family in Syria, or people I care about there, are, are doing very badly at the moment. They're being shot up by the government and so on. Uh, events that have don't, nothing to do with my own life can make me unhappy. Hence, being satisfied with my, my life can't be the same thing as, as happiness. They, they come apart. Um, and of course, my feelings can come apart from how I uh, judge my life to be, my, my beliefs about uh, the, the ideals that, that I have. Uh, and this could be for, for many, many reasons. Uh, it could be that people have adopted their uh, ideals from, uh, you know, from the way that they've been taught, and they, they don't really correspond to the sort of things that they really enjoy in life, uh, and, and hence they, they remain unhappy. So, so I think that uh, there's actually quite a few problems, just, just in terms of what happiness is in, in terms of life satisfaction. Um, and I'll try to look at who, who's going to bang me in the head with, uh, with the hammer and say, you don't have, you have two minutes. Uh, but um, I'll, I'll try to be as, as quick as I can. Um, so, um, uh, so then you have hybrid views, uh, where, where you have both kind of hedonistic pleasure and, and life satisfaction judgments. Uh, and, you know, in a way, you can say that's an improvement, but also that inherits the problems of each of these, these views. So uh, it's... Uh, 
it's not so so easy, yeah, not so plausible either. So the, my favorite kind of view uh, says that happiness is an emotional condition, where an emotional condition is, is broader uh, than, than just pain and pleasure. Uh, so, so I say that uh, someone is, is happy if they uh, robustly experience positive moods and emotions concerning the sort of things that they care about. That's, that's what it is to be happy on, on, on this, this kind of view, or my, my variant of that kind of view. So, uh, so there's several elements to this. So, so first of all, uh, you have positive moods and, and emotions. Those are the sort of things that are most important for our happiness. Not, not all of them are necessarily pleasant, uh, and not all uh, negative moods or emotions are necessarily unpleasant or, or painful. So it's 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 not the not the same thing, though of course sometimes they come come together. So so the kind of positive emotions are, are like joy and uh, elation and uh, I know excitement, uh, sense of purpose. It's it's hard to find terms for these sometimes. Uh, it's particularly hard if you're uh, a Finnish man like like myself, where uh, we have very narrow emotional register. Uh, and, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, and we're certainly not taught to think in those terms. Um, still, I think that this is a, is a correct um, um, kind of view. Now, an important element of this is uh, the emphasis on, on moods, and not just emotions. Moods are the sort of things that color our experience as a whole, and they're often in the background. We, we're not really focused on them. That's, that's the nature of, of, of a mood, is that it, it just somehow colors the entire experience that, that we have. So, so uh, we can be very anxious about something, for example, or we can be irritated about things. Uh, and uh, even con uh, at the same time, experience some, some pleasure. Uh, and I want to say that if that's the case, then, then, then we're not happy. The, the overall mood, the, the outlook that we have on our uh, life and our world is, is more important than, than particular uh, individual uh, emotions. Uh, this, this kind of view uh, has its roots in, in ancient hedonism, where uh, people distinguish between different kinds of uh, pleasures. So, uh, so Epicurus, for example, uh, talked about kinetic pleasures, which are pleasures of moving from a state of uh, privation or lack into a state of fulfillment. Like, like you feel good when you're hungry and you, you eat something. Uh, and he thought that that kind of pleasure, the kind of pleasure that we might most easily associate with, with the idea of pleasure uh, is not really the important kind. In addition to this kinetic pleasure, there's also static pleasure, as, as, as he called it. And this is more like a, a mood of, of being untroubled, like you're feeling light, uh, feeling open to new experiences. Uh, and, and that's the sort of thing that I, I, I think is really uh, uh, central to, uh, to happiness. Uh, all right. So, so then, well, th there is a further kind of view in, in, the phil in philosophical literature in particular that uh, is sometimes called a, a eudaimonistic view uh, that, that came up there. Uh, but this is a view about happiness and not about well-being in general. Uh, and I'll say a few words about why those are, are, are different things in a, in a second. And I'm, I'm also trying to wrap up things here. Uh, so, um, so, so these eudaimonistic views say that... Uh, um, being virtuous is constitutive of, of being uh, happy. Uh, and I want to say that that is not really 
uh, a view of happiness in, in our sense. Uh, uh, we, uh, we tend to think of happiness as exclusively as a psychological state. Now, uh, sometimes people argue that this eudaimonistic conception isn't so far from our notion of happiness by uh, focusing on a particular kind of example where people are sometimes inclined to say that someone isn't leading a happy life even though they, they feel good, they have a lot of positive emotions, say, and they might be satisfied with them. So, so, so this is the case where someone is deceived about the conditions of uh, her life or his life uh, and, and feels happy only because of that. So, so, I don't know if you've seen the film The Truman Show. Remember Jim, Jim Carrey? So there's this world that's constructed to fool him into thinking that he's, he's thriving, doing well. He's, he's got friends and family and, and job and all this. But it's all a, all a show. It's all a fake. It's a reality TV show, I think. Isn't, isn't that the...? We've never seen it, actually. Uh, we economists do so much work, we never go out. I see, I see. Um, that probably came off when you had your baby. And, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, um, happy in there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, but but in any case, so, so the question is: Is is the guy the Truman in that situation? Is he really happy or not? Uh, I and I think we can say yes. He's happy. He wouldn't be happy if he knew the truth. But but as it is, he is happy. But but I can I do do see the uh, sense of people say: Well, is he leading a happy life? It's well, certainly isn't the life that you would want to lead. He could do better than that. Uh, I think that's definitely true. And these kind of examples, in fact, show that uh, uh, there's more to uh, living well than just being happy. Uh, uh, to, to really uh, thrive as a, uh, as a person or as, as, as a human being, uh, uh, one thing that you need is that your, your happiness isn't based on deception. Uh, I think there's other things too, and I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a second. All right. Uh, so uh, the second question was, how do we know that we're happy, and uh, how, how do we measure happiness? I'm going to say very little about it now, uh, but I think that the answer, well, obviously depends on what we think happiness is. If happiness isn't just uh, a matter of having a lot of pleasant feelings, whether they're superficial or, or deep or, or something like that, then it's, it's not going to be obvious to us whether we're happy. That, that explains why we can be mistaken about our happiness, is that Happiness is this sort of overall emotional condition, and we can often be uh, misled uh, about that. We might focus on, on one particular experience and forget ab about the, the whole, the big picture uh, about our emotional lives. And, and the fact that these moods are designed in a way to stay in the background, uh, there's something that we don't focus on. They don't have a particular object, they're not directed at something, they're just you know, the, the whole experience. Uh, it's easy to, uh, or relatively easy anyway, to, to miss them, I think. So there's what philosophers call affective ignorance. Uh, that's that's at, at play. So the, the first person privilege that, that we have about how happy we are is, uh, is only defeasible. All right. Uh, so I'm not going to say anything now about what makes us happy, the third question that I, I mentioned. Uh, the only thing I, I want to say about this that is, uh, that there's, I think that there's a way to go about answering that that isn't straightforwardly empirical. So, so if we have a conception of what happiness is, and if we put that together with a, a view of human nature, uh, then I think that that gives us a, a pretty good predictions about what makes people happy. 
Like given what we are like fundamentally as, as human beings and given what happiness is, we can see well, we can expect that certain things will, will make us happy. So, for example, uh, um, many uh, philosophers in, uh, uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, thought that uh, an important part of human nature is our natural sociability, our tendency to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and spontaneously and, and without, without effort. And... Um, and take on the attitudes that they have towards us. Uh, so, uh, and if that's true about human nature, and I think that psychological research uh, confirms that insight that, that these philosophers had, uh, it's going to be very hard for us to be happy when we're surrounded by people who despise us, who don't respect us, who don't uh, esteem us. Uh, and I think that's also borne out by these, these studies on, on life satisfaction and other things. Uh, 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 well, uh, I'll, I'll say uh, uh, more things about that uh, in, in the discussion if, if it comes up. Now, so finally, I want to say a few things about uh, uh, whether and, and how happiness matters. Like, what is the significance that it has and should have for our personal decisions and, uh, and for uh, public policy? And, and what I want to emphasize is that uh, happiness is when it comes to personal significance, it's just one good thing among others. Uh, there, uh, we can benefit someone, not just by making them happier, but, uh, for example, uh, giving them the opportunity to exercise the sort of uh, skills and capacities that, that make them human, uh, like to, to experience emotions, to, uh, to give them intellectual challenges, for example. Again, often these things do make people happy. But even if they don't, uh, they're still good for, for people. Uh, and uh, in particular, I think this goes for uh, meaningfulness in, in, in life. So, so I think, uh, following uh, the philosopher Susan Wolf, uh, roughly speaking, to, to lead a meaningful life uh, is, is to uh, in, engage in activities or, or projects uh, that are successful and that uh, involves something of objective value. Uh, so, so my kind of paradigm of a, of a meaningful life is, uh, is Martin Luther King. Uh, I think it was good for Martin Luther King uh, to take the sort of risks and, and, the, and the worries and the stress that went with being a civil rights leader. He, he fought for very important things. Uh, he was successful uh, as achieving them uh, and uh, in doing so, uh, he, he had to, he, he got to exercise all these sort of uh, capacities that uh, make us human. I imagination, reason, uh, emotion, um, social skills, and, and, and everything. Uh, and he, he, I, I think it's uh, fair to uh, say that he would have been, or he could have been happier in terms of whatever conception of happiness, had he just stayed an uh, anonymous pastor but with his family, you know, being appreciated by the by his own uh, congregation and, and never taken all the all the stress and risk. But I think it was still good for him to, to go ahead with that. So there's there's other things in life that matter than, than happiness. And you, I think it's a mistake to make decisions, especially big decisions in life, like whether to have children, whether to get married, whether to take a particular job, or or go to a particular school, just on the base of 
the happiness that you expect to get from it. Not just because you're probably wrong about <laughs> how happy it will make you, as, as, as has been um, shown by this, this research. Uh, so finally, uh, about the political significance of happiness. Uh, now, I, I'm basically a, a liberal egalitarian uh, in, in political philosophy. Uh, that's, that's pretty much a mainstream view in, in philosophy. I'll, I'll just explain very briefly what that means. So, so uh, the basic question in political philosophy is, is like, what should the, the state do? Uh, how should this political power be exercised? Uh, and uh, liberal egalitarians think that, that there's, there's a couple of things that are really uh, important about that. First of all, uh, we have to make sure that people's rights are respected. That's, uh, that's the only way to respect people is to, is to give, protect their basic liberties so they can make their own decisions in life. Uh, as long as they don't hurt other people or interfere with other people's decisions, no one tells them what to do. Uh, they can practice the religion that they choose or, or no religion at all. Uh, they can associate with other people. They can express their opinions in, in, in the press and in, in public and so on. That's government's first job is to guarantee those, those basic rights and, and liberties. Uh, and they can also engage in market behavior. They can trade things that they, they're entitled to with, with other people. And, and that's uh, what government should, should guarantee. Uh, it should also, I think, uh, make sure that people have uh, a fair chance at uh, making something of their life. That, that their uh, destiny isn't determined by uh, you know, how rich their parents happen to be, for example, or which part of the country they happen to be born in, what, what color their skin happens to be. Uh, and and uh, to do that, we need, at the very least, uh, a fair equality of opportunity, that people have uh, access to sort of education, uh, to health care, and things like that, that, that make it possible for them to make most of their lives. So that's what government should do. And I've said nothing about happiness yet. Uh, or well-being of, of any sort, really. Uh, uh, but I think that it does come into play. So once these sort of basic rights and, and uh, uh, equality and fairness are uh, ensured, uh, well then, uh, there's room for democratic decision-making. Uh, so uh, people can vote for uh, candidates or in other ways participate in, in politics uh, according to their preferences. Uh, and uh, and if it happens to be the case that people prefer uh, to, to lead happy lives, then, so, and, and if it's, say, discovered that uh, having a public park nearby uh, increases people's life satisfaction, and if people want that, uh, yeah, let them vote for candidates who are uh, for that, or let them participate in, in, in some uh, you know, more engaged fashion in, in bringing about this kind of changes. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to... Uh, assume that happiness is what people want. If people don't want to be happy, if they, if they think other things are more important, then they can vote for candidates who, who are for those things or who are against them. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that it shouldn't really have a direct policy significance. Um, and, and that's actually the last thing I want to say. Thank you. <laughs> Um, we have half an hour left, 
I actually had three sort of questions that I wanted to ask Auntie and everyone, because I don't know the answers to these. There's loads of things I don't know, but these are three specific ones. Um, one thing we've talked about is this idea of a social norm. Um, we haven't talked about spillovers, and in a sense we say we all want to be happy and that's a great thing, but that doesn't guarantee then that we should have a society where we try to maximise everyone's happiness because me being happy may make you unhappy. So this is the idea of income. If I get income, that's good for me, it's bad for you. Does that actually spill over to happiness as well or are we indeed all altruists? I don't know. Um, I only say one more thing. I just read... Um, I just read a recent issue of Granta, I don't remember which one, uh, and, and this kind of, one of the things in there was this rant against technological society. It's a great, great thing. It's sort of, a, sort of an old fogey piece about how bad it was to have mobile phones and computers. Um, really, really good, though, and it made, made the point that, well, children were exposed to electronic media, as I remember, nine hours a day, and that the presence of internet and Facebook in particular, this person seemed to have something really bad against Facebook, right? um, had generated a kind of hive of trivia that had sucked all the meaning, all the meaning out of life. So it's meaningless. Meaninglessness is a global trait caused by Facebook. So, um, so is that actually true? Is electronic media just... You know, taking all the meaning out of our lives. That's, well, that's what I'd like to know. Uh, and uh, I'll, uh, can I, I'll say something about this. Uh, um, I'm, I'm also eager to get uh, everybody into this discussion. Yeah. But uh, uh, so I think that uh, there's a, there's a there's a couple of issues uh, to to do with that. Why why this, these trends might be making people uh, less happy. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and also making their lives less, less meaningful. So certainly um, one important thing is, is the, the effect of, of comparison, of, that w of status comparison. When, when everybody else, you know, all your friends on Facebook have pictures of their big house and their big car and their, their big family and, and so on. And, and uh, Well, I have a small car and small family. I, you know, that's, that, yeah, there's, you know, the, the sort of studies that you cite suggest that that, that would uh, quite likely cause problems, and especially for, for younger people who might have a, a weaker sense of self-esteem in the, in the first place, I think, or sense that where they're, where they're going. Uh, I think the, uh, the other thing is that uh, I think that in order to experience life as meaningful, we have to um, have some sort of genuine achievements, uh, some, something that's, uh, first of all, it's, it's difficult to uh, be successful in that's that's one, one part of it. Something that matters beyond our uh, own uh, pleasure that makes a difference to to other people's lives. To to makes a difference to say science or uh, art or, or, or something uh, something bigger than just just ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that the uh, much of the time that we we spend with these screens or electronic devices is, is time away from doing these things. But they, they offer us challenges uh, 
uh, that are not not really real. It's 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 you know you play the game, you you win or you lose, you know Angry Birds or whatever. You destroy a a, a nest of uh, of pigs somewhere, and and you get a little sense of achievement out of that. But it's not enough to sustain a sense of purpose in your life, I think. Uh, so I, at least in that way. It, I'm it, not deleting my account. <laughs> <laughs> No, you, you, you could be okay. moderator, that's fine. Okay. So, Juliana and then Katie. Um, I'll try to keep track. You might have to raise your hands again, but I'll, I'll try to keep track. Okay. <laughs> Daniel Kahneman points at some cognitive traps that make it actually difficult to think straight about happiness. Uh, one of them is actually confusion between experience and memory. Then he points out there is a distinction, there is a difference, in fact, in, uh, between how we experience ourselves and how our remembering selves perceive happiness. So it's actually the distinction between how you feel when you leave and the satisfaction that you have about your life, when you think about your life. And actually, he's just right to the conclusion that we should be measuring them separately because they're very different. So I've noticed that we're slipping back from one to the other. So. The question is, what do you, do you think is a fair distinction? Oh, should I answer that? Sorry. <laughs> I'll have to get loads of questions and then I could ignore the ones I don't know how to answer. Um, yeah, experience versus remembered utility. I think as a, as a sort of boring, pointy-headed economist, one of the things that's important for us is what are the drivers of action. And the drivers of action have got to be remembered utility. It's what we remember that makes us do what we do. That doesn't necessarily mean that we make good choices. Um, the, the, I don't know if you know the work of um, George Lowenstein and Peter Eubel on kidney dialysis patients. This is just such a great example. So people are going to go into kidney dialysis, as I remember, yeah. maybe you know this yeah, thing, yeah. and they're asked to predict how they're going to feel, and they say, ah, it's going to be, my happiness is going to be lower by X point, it's going to be a disaster. Hooked up to the machine, nightmare, no life. You know. So then they go on to dialysis, and they're asked how they feel, and actually they give the same scores that they did beforehand. And then they're asked, and how did you feel before you went on dialysis? And they give an answer that is X points higher. So they think it's going to be awful, and it isn't, and to kind of rationalise that, they think they were happier beforehand. And they're just wrong. They're wrong about the whole thing. But that's, the, that's what drives their behaviour. So I, I, would, I would go for remembered every time. Um, and there is this big difficulty then between me and psychologists who go for things like uh, experience momentary sampling where you ring people randomly during the day and say, what are you doing, who are you with, and how do you feel? And that gives you more of a photo of what people are doing during the day. But that's not necessarily what's going to make them do what they do. And, and then we have the philosophical... Well, philosophical, I can't use that word, sorry. Um, <laughs> then we have we the... It's a small p, right? Um, when we have the debate about what's, what's important, life as you live it or life as you remember it. And I don't know how to answer that. But I do know what drives behaviour. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just very briefly... Um, I, I think that the life as we live it has to be more important because at the end of it, you know, what, otherwise the only thing that will matter is how you remember your life when you're 80 and uh, you could manipulate people's memories and you know, they could have a very bad life, you know, very unhappy life and still count as happy on, exactly. on that. So, so I, I think it has to be that. I'm a little bit skeptical uh, for the reasons that I mentioned about our ignorance of, of 
our overall emotional state about these results that, that uh, Kahneman and, and company get. So, so one thing that they have is they, they use these kind of dials that you can you know, turn up or turn down depending on how you, how you feel at a, at a certain, certain point in time. And it's really unclear to me what that is measuring. Like, I, I don't know if anyone could say what, what is being measured by that. Um, Question in the back there, and then we'll go back to the front of that. Yeah, actually, more question. Remember that definition of happiness you were trying to give. I believe that we can't give like a vicious circle. So what's happiness is what makes me happy. What makes me happy is what's happiness. Because it is absolutely subjective, and it's based on human nature. And if you take that into account, that human nature is subject to change. Things which make people happy like 50 years ago won't make people happy nowadays. So I believe that human definition of happiness is almost impossible, like a definition of good and bad. It's different from place to place. As we move in, we got different understanding of the outside world. And it would affect our wishes, what we want, what makes us happy, what doesn't make us happy. So I think it's just circle that it goes on and on always. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a parallel to, to make this kind of distinction clear. So, uh, so one question, uh, and uh, with, there's, a, there's a bit of a problem with ordinary language when we say that something makes something uh, uh, another thing. We, we, can, we can be meaning two different things. So, so one is that uh, one thing causes another. Uh, so, so when you say that, uh, I don't know, uh, falling in love makes you happy. Let's say there's one thing you fall in love, and that causes another thing, a psychological state. Then, but then there's another sense in which we talk about what constitutes happiness. And I think that what constitutes happiness is going to be the same for, for everyone. Uh, it's, it is going to be uh, whatever the correct account is of that. And of course, so I think that it is sort of positive overall emotional condition. Uh, that's what it is to be happy. Uh, but different things make different people happy. So different things give rise to a positive emotional condition for different people. So, so that's, that's the empirical question, and that's going to vary from person to person. And then there's the philosophical question about the nature of happiness, and that's, uh, that's going to have just one correct answer. Uh, so I was trying to think of a parallel, like, 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 uh, like what it is to have a cold. You know, having a cold is the same thing, but maybe different people get a cold from different things. Yeah, I think the problem is that... Sorry, I think we have to... Happiness is a matter of values, not fact. Then you can't give definition of value. It's not factual. So it's not concrete. So we're not just a passion of feeling inside. How can I explain it? No one can explain it. Uh, well, just, if you want to, yeah. But just just think about any feeling that that you might have. In a, in one sense, it's it's subjective because it's something that you experience. Uh, but but so say being angry, maybe that's a better example. But but. I won't attempt to, to give a definition of that. Here, here I'll just say, we all recognize, we know what it is when you're angry. Uh, and we, so I think that's the same thing. Everybody who's angry is in the same psychological uh, state, even though it's a subjective state. But different things make pe different people angry. And I think the same goes for happiness. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, just to end here, I, I was really surprised when you... Um, I think we're suggesting that there's a kind of a straight correla uh, correlation between uh, income or affluence and, and happiness. And what I understood was that, you know, 
that this correlation was kind of a, or there was that dramatic association when we're talking about basic needs being met, but once we get into middle class and higher, that this was kind of, that this effect plateaued, and I think similar to your dialysis example, I think when they've measured happiness in people who, for example, win the lottery, they, they as well score their happiness once mm -hmm. the kind of novelty is worn off as the same. And I think related to that, this idea that I think you made an assumption here that, or, or raised the assumption that that relative affluence also makes us happy. And I, I would really question that. I think, you know, some of the standard happiness research that we hear, you know, that Danes are happier and, and countries with more egalitarian or, or, you know, higher Gini coefficients and all that hmm. actually rate themselves happier. I think they're talking about satisfaction, but, yeah, but yeah. I, I think that's a problematic or, or is, worth, is worth interrogating. Okay, um, income and happiness. This is this has been the subject that's attracted the most uh, keystrokes, I suppose we'd say now, as opposed to ink being spelt. Um, I do believe, and the research I've carried out and the research I've seen suggests that probably the majority of the effect of income in rich countries, once basic needs are, are met, is a relative one. So it's true that if anyone tells you income doesn't buy happiness, they're wrong, okay? But income buys you happiness if you get it and no one else does. That's, that's the key thing. It, it is an idea of status, of rank, of comparisons. I, 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 do, I do believe that. Lottery winners are happier. They're happier one year after, they're happier two years after, they're happier three years after. In the BHPS, we've been following these people. It, and of course, everyone in Britain plays the lottery, right? And a lot of people win. Um, well, they don't win very much, but they win something. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would suggest that that's actually true. It's not just a, 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 an effect of the number of dollars. It's really the effect of the number of dollars relative to the number of dollars around me. Um, this, uh, this finding that the, da the Danes, uh, Scandinavians are a problem yeah. in general, you agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the, the, the Scandinavians are all super happy. Okay. And, and kill themselves in great numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Too much happiness is bad. Right. Um, and you, you, make, you make the very good point that these are countries with lower income inequality. And of course that doesn't necessarily uh, contradict an idea of relative income mattering. Because if you shrink inequality, what happens? Well, the rich become less rich relatively and absolutely, but the poor become richer relatively and absolutely. So then you have to ask for which group is income more important, the rich or the poor? And I would suspect that it's the poor because we think utility functions are concave. So, uh, but there's a lot to understand about inequality and well-being, but it doesn't contradict the idea of relative income. So a brief addition to that is, is that I, I just read a paper by uh, Kahneman and someone else that uh, says that uh, you can buy money, money buys you life satisfaction in terms of judgments, but not experienced uh, right. satisfaction. So, so it, yeah. it matters which measure of happiness we're using for, yeah. for this as well. Okay, we've well, got lots of questions. Yeah. Um, just a general point, really. Sometimes I was listening to what's been meaning and happiness. I think you have two people have identical experience, but how they interpret that experience, and particularly how they see themselves in terms of that experience, can affect how happy they feel. For example, examples being somebody who's a high self-esteem person, but tends to see the successes because of them and the failures as just exceptions to the rule. But conversely, a low self-esteem person. The opposite. So it strikes me that there's a real 
really, I don't know how you achieve this, but sort of essentially what makes people happier is giving people the right sort of um, way to reflect on their experiences. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's definitely true that it's, it's, a, it's a large determinant of uh, how happy people feel is it's it's not the events that happen in in their lives, but but also uh, their their character, how how they relate to uh, to these things. And I think that that that's one factor that actually calls into question the significance of happiness for policy, since these things are very difficult to to address through through policy. But perhaps it's something that you can pay more attention to in in education in in general. I'll, also for this reason, but I, I think we have reason anyway not to crush people's self-esteem in, in education, but this is an additional reason for that. There's, um, I mean, I think it's true in general that people assign good events to their own skill and bad outcomes to bad luck. Um, you've, you've just made me think, I, I can't think where I've seen this. There, is a, there are actually surveys that try to capture that kind of assignation and I can't remember where they are and it will be very interesting to look at that assignation and its relation to other subjective outcomes like well-being. I've never seen that done, that would be a very good thing to do. Thank you. That's, um, do we think that uh, religion contributes to happiness, sort of having um, a strong faith in a higher being that um, sort of has determined our, our, sort of our purpose? The answer to that is yes. Um, absolutely, in survey data, the religious are always significantly happier than the non-religious. Of course, that's that's not to say that um, <laughs> you know that's not to do. You should go around proselytizing and forcefully converting people. I mean, that doesn't necessarily say that the non-religious will be happier religious. It's you know each, everyone chooses uh, what's right for them. One of, one of the things I. I looked at was the effect of not my religion on my happiness, but the effect of other people's religion on my happiness. And I had in mind this kind of optimal sorting outcome, that if I'm a Protestant, I'd like to live with Protestants. If I'm a Catholic, I'd like to live with Catholics. If I'm, and it actually works in European social survey data. Catholics are happier in Catholic regions. Protestants are happier in Protestant regions. And I thought, atheists, this is going to be brilliant. Um, atheists have got to be happier in atheistic regions. And no. They're happier living with religious people. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so there's something really good, uh, in a sense, there's something really good about religion, not just for you, but for the people with whom you live. That's, that's the feeling I'm getting out of, out of the data, which is not necessary to say that we should all go to church immediately, but that's, that's what comes out on average. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, I guess my question, or my yeah, my question has got to do with the issue of language, and I think you know this is a talk that's been focused around what's supposed to be a unitary concept, the happiness. Um, but I think in both of your talks, the idea was kind of suggested that perhaps the word can be used in different senses. Um, and I guess coming from coming from a clinical angle, I'm thinking about the fact that we have two very different reward centers in the brain, one which is kind of quite focused on, as I understand it, drives, uh, goal-oriented behaviors, victory and conflict, another much more focused around attachment, closeness, value relationships, my, my associated with meaning. 
Um, but I'm struck by the fact that most of the, the issue of spillover came up when, uh, I'm sorry, I forget my reading names, um, Dr. Clark was speaking at the end about the issue of one person's happiness is contingent on other people being less happy. Um, but I guess the, the issue that I'm wondering about is the fact that given that this language is socially acquired, whether our naive concepts of happiness are overly overly determined by the fact that we live in a social context that is constantly, we're in, most people are constantly facing evaluation, change, fluctuation, and have to pursue active, tangible goals rather than perhaps developing, being satisfied with development of meaning and satisfaction with a stationary position within life. That's one for you, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got something I can say. So yeah, I, I'll just I'll just talk about the first part of that about the about the different. So I, I do think that uh, in in ordinary language uh, we use the term happy quite liber liberally, um, and I think that uh, uh, when we do either science or, or philosophy, we we have to be a, a bit more. Precise, you know, just try to figure out what what is really at the at the core of this notion. What's the what's the what's the, what's the kind of happiness that matters? Uh, so, uh, so in a sense, uh, you know, sometimes I can say, you know, this drinking this makes me, you know, I was really happy I had that drink. Uh, but at other times, when we we think about these these platitudes that I was uh, I was talking about, like uh, like happy people are enjoyable company, like that's clearly not about somebody who just had a, you know, it's not. There's something more to it than that. So, um, so I, I, I think that we can, for, for particular purposes, we can we can narrow down the notion of happiness. We can kind of look at this. This is what's really important about it, and uh, uh, kind of leave to the side these these other kind of usages that that there are. And but there is actually a very interesting. I wasn't being facetious. There is actually a very interesting body of research on cross-cultural, hmm. um, where you can try to see whether the same relationships hold across countries and of course across language groups. So you know, there's no particular word I can use in French, for example, for, for happiness. It just doesn't come across right. You know, the word happiness that I know in English, I can't really translate easily into French. Because um, that concept just doesn't exist in that way, I don't think. And that's actually why the, um, the Swiss are really useful. Um, I mean, they're very useful for lots of things, and maybe they're useful for the financial meltdown seminar, actually, as well. But um, in this context, they're very useful because, of course, they've got three languages and they're within the same country. So that's a nice test base for seeing whether language groups and presumably culture actually change uh, uh, the relationships that we're interested in. Um, another thing you can do if you're interested in sort of happiness in that way is look at MRI, look at, look at magnetic resonance imaging, look at how people's brains are reacting when they're saying things like, oh, I feel good, I don't feel good. Do they light up in the same way? Are they using language in the same way in some sense? But that's still um, very, very early doors. Uh, we're not there yet, but that's, that's interesting research, I think. Um, do you have any thoughts about what government, in terms of government policy, what government can do in terms of happiness, and especially in times like, like the winter, in terms of the economic turmoil? And do you think there's any kind of uh, policy tension between, for example, um, saving the economy and people's happiness? Well, 
So if I'll just say, say briefly, I think that, um, so as long as people's kind of rights are respected, then, then the government should do what, what people want the government to do. And, and it might be that, I mean, ideally, and of course we're very far from this kind of ideal, and that's, there's many problems with the uh, contemporary democracies. So, uh, a vote for one party is a very blunt weapon. You, see, you, know, you, you have to buy the whole package, so, so to speak. You don't have enough packages to, to choose from. Uh, uh, but ideally, you'd have one party that says, you know, we should do this because it increases happiness, and another party that says, you know, we should do this because it increases wealth, and then you could express your preference by voting for one rather than the other. Uh, now, now perhaps there's, there's indirect ways in which uh, um, you know, we can influence policy, uh, well, not necessarily in, indirect, but, but, but different ways apart from voting. So, so uh, and people uh, who, who try to promote uh, what is known as deliberative democracy. Like one thing that they do is they, uh, they invite random uh, people for a panel discussion about some issue and they give them information about, well, if we do this, it'll have such and such consequences and so on. I think that consequences to happiness should, should play a role in that kind of uh, discussions, uh, as well as economic, more you know, traditionally economic considerations. And, uh, and, and perhaps that could be used as an input into into some some decision making at, at the government level, uh, but uh, uh, but but uh, on the on the whole, I think that it 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 shouldn't be the government that decides which is happier, wealth or happiness, but but the people who uh, who vote for the parties. Well, recessions defined by negative growth. Um, if we believe that income is only relative then it might, you, know, you might say something like, well, a recession doesn't matter um, because we're all getting poorer. Uh, there are two things to say about that. One is that when GDP goes down by 3%, that doesn't mean that all our salaries in this room go down by 3%. It means that most of us don't actually feel much pain, and some people do extremely badly indeed. So recessions are kind of uh, inegalitarian in that way. Um, the other point is... There's, there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about the Easterlin paradox. Um, that's, and people say, well, money doesn't matter. Uh, the Easterlin paradox says that 1% growth is the same thing as 3% growth, it's the same thing as 4% growth in rich countries. It just doesn't make any difference. What it doesn't say is that recessions don't matter. Recessions matter hugely. If you look at that graph that I put up, you, it was flat, but the bits where happiness went down sharply, you can check them out. Those are recessions in the US. So recessions matter a lot due to loss aversion. So um, what should we be doing as governments? Well, we should be paying, if I had the magic wand, we should be paying less attention to ratcheting growth up from 25 to 2.8% per year. We've all got far too much stuff. Really, it doesn't matter. We won't notice it. It doesn't make any difference. I promise you that. What we should be uh, aiming at avoiding are catastrophic uh, reverses for individuals, things like unemployment. Unemployment is, is just the, one of the biggest hits we've ever seen in terms of subjective well-being, and you don't get used to it. It doesn't go away. It starts bad, stays bad. It's, it's a very bad thing in, in, in terms of uh, uh, well-being. I'd just add, add to that quickly that... Uh, it's uh, it's also found in these studies that unemployment is a bad thing regardless of the income. It's it, it's not just because oh, you have less less money. It, it's, you know, it, it's it, almost it, irrelevant. Actually. Yeah. I mean, it, 
the most of the effect is is a stigmatic effect that you're just you know you're you're willing you're there you want to do something you are not able to express those you know, those desires and I, th I think what do we come out with something like um the, the psych, what we call the psychological, the non-monetary effect of unemployment is something like five to eight times larger than the monetary effect. So money matters, but it's just the fact of being stigmatized yeah. on the labor market that's yeah. important. And I, I think there's, actually it goes even further than that. So, so I think that like very roughly speaking on the basis of what we know about human nature, I think it, we could expect that the sort of things that matter most for happiness are kind of sense of basic security that, uh, that we're, you know, we're, we're going to go on tomorrow and we have our things and our, our lives somehow in, together. We have some sense of control that we, we can make a difference in, in the world, that we have a sense of purpose, that the difference that we make is, you know, is something significant beyond ourselves. And, and the sense of self-worth, that, that, that we're you know, not, not worse than others at least. And I think that unemployment threatens all of those things. Uh, and that, that's why it is such a bad thing. Yeah, there's another bad thing, namely, we've run out of time. <laughs> so um, please join me in thanking our speakers and thanks for <laughs>